I hope everybody had an enjoyable week and uh, welcome you back again to our study with Dr. Ham as we look at Genesis. As we do, let's open in prayer. Father God, I think it was Thursday night, Friday morning as we cleaned up the house and you spoke the word preparation. And I thought of all the preparations that were made for the meal and for the house. And we threw out the leftovers and we put away the paper products and all the decorations. And I thought, well, that's over for a year. And you reminded me that now we enter the season of preparation for the gift of your son. And my hope was that in doing that, we don't think, oh, it's just another year, another season, and put it away in its special place, but that we carry it in our hearts each and every day. And as we do prepare, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit and help prepare our hearts and minds to receive the message that we're about to hear today. We praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. thinking again this week about those two very theologically loaded terms, um, transcendence and imminence. And it, it, it occurred to me that we don't really have a good grasp of those terms because um, it, those aren't everyday words that we use. We, don't, we often do not talk about transcendence and imminence. Uh, so I was asking my son, okay, does this make sense? He's, he's, he's almost 15. Um, and, and he said, no, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, <coughs> and then so I, I, I appealed to his, uh, he's a, he, he loves to play video games. So I appealed to his senses, uh, his, his, his love of video games. I talked to him about that. And I said, all right, so what I just talked to you about uh, previously didn't make any sense. Although if I were talking to a colleague, uh, a another biblical scholar, it would have made perfect sense. But now that I'm talking to you about your video games, it makes sense to you, right? And he goes, of course, I know more about video games than you do. Um, so I was talking to him about this, and, I, and, and it occurred, so the th thought that occurred to me is this. Uh, you like I said before, you can't be transcendent and imminent at the same time. You're either transcendent or you're imminent. So you're, you're either, um, so let's, let's, let's talk about God. God is transcendent in chapter one. I don't know any other being who can just say, let light be and light just becomes. That is unimaginable, in fact. Um, even the greatest magicians, uh, the tricks that, you know, when people make things disappear and appear, the biggest thing they could think of is like an airliner or something like that, right? But can you imagine a being who says, you know, I want a universe. Ah, there you go. Uh, I can't imagine that. I, 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 I once saw a video that, that tries to show how big the universe really is. And so it starts out with the earth, 
And it pulls back and shows the sun, size of the sun and the size of a larger sun and larger sun. It keeps, it, it keeps going and going. And it keeps zooming out, zooming out until I've lost all concept of size. And then we haven't even gotten to our own galaxy, let alone all the galaxies of our universe. And so I can't imagine a God who says, oh, you know, I want a I'd like a universe, please. And there it is. I can imagine a God who says, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. And we can't. So I'm going to overcome it for us. I understand that God. Uh, so in Genesis 1, we saw the transcendent God who says, let light be. Yehi or. Yehi or. Let, let light be and light be. That kind of transcendent being is called Elohim. We talked about Elohim, God. It's a, it's a plural of majesty. Um, and, and last week we talked about this, this covenant name, <coughs> uh, Yahweh, or mispronounced Jehovah, I talked about that, and, and often referred to as the Lord in all caps in most translations, uh, adopting the, tra uh, the tradition of the Masoretes, the Jewish tradition of never saying the Lord's name out loud so that you only say Adonai, which means Lord. Um, that practice has been adopted by the King James English and so most of our translations. I think Holman Christian Bible sometimes use, uses Yahweh when the name is appropriate. So Whenever you see the Lord your God, for example, Lord your God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. That Lord your God is the name, then the title. So it's, they're not two titles in a row. Lord sounds like a title, but it's not. So I explain to my students often, it's like saying, obey TC, your professor. One's a name and one's a title. And, and the two, the imminent and the transcendent occurs together. But in chapter two and three, we get a picture of this very intimate God. And we're gonna see more of this today. I wanna set that stage. Um, and theocentric, I talked about that word, means centered around God, theos means God. So theocentric is chapter one. Chapter two and three really is anthropocentric. Uh, it's centered around us, human beings. So the story becomes, so the scope of chapter one was a universe, right? As big as we can imagine it. And then chapter two becomes a garden, a tiny little spot. So uh, we'll continue reading chapter two. Uh, <clears throat> I was explaining to, to Dana a couple weeks ago that I was hoping to cover the first three chapters of Genesis in four weeks, and I'm still hoping to do that. We're gonna have to skip some parts. Uh, the reason I'm covering first three chapters of Genesis and not the whole Genesis, obviously, because it would take us <laughs> several months uh, just to work through the whole book, but also because chapter one, two, and three become essentially like a, um, an outline or a core or the blueprint for the rest of the Bible. So much so that all the biblical writers refer to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, uh, just in everyday conversation almost. I mentioned Job saying, let there be darkness um, in when he's suffering. So sometimes the words simply have to, just, just a single word 
might bring us to that memory of a shared story. So for us, for example, in the West, we say, once upon a time, and everybody's on the same page, right? Uh, or happily ever after, we're on the same page. So there are certain references in the Bible, you just have to say a couple of words, and you go, oh, Genesis 1. A couple of words, oh, Genesis 2. A couple of words, oh, we're talking about Genesis 3, the fall. So, all right. Um, I believe we left off verse, was it four? Okay. We'll go back to four. I think I briefly mentioned it, but let's, let's, let's start at verse four, since that's the, really the new beginning of the new unit here. Uh, so these are the generations, or the account of, this is the account of, these are generations of the heavens and the earth uh, in their creation, when they were created. On the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, name, then title, Yahweh God, uh, made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. Now, there's a new beginning here. Uh, now, when, uh, I'm, I'm going to introduce a clause here, but it begins with all. But uh, in English, we, I think we would have said every or none. Uh, when there were no uh, shrubs of the field, and he, that word here to be, haya, uh, that, that word occurs here again. So when there were no such things existing, that's that word, to be. And, and none of the Asev uh, plant life of the field uh, had, had sprouted for, because Lord God had not caused rain upon the earth. And Adam, mankind, or man, was not there to work the ground. Now, uh, I've, I've held this wordplay for you for a while. Um, Adam, Adam, Adama, ground. Hear it? Adam, Adama. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna see, they, they set this up then. There was no Adam to work the Adama. <laughs> so that setup will be explained in, in, in short time here. All right, no, I know I said I don't want to get into it, but uh, let, me, let me pause here again, just quickly say, the, a more literalist reading of Genesis 1 and 2 would cause problems here, wouldn't it? Because vegetation was created before, on day three in Genesis 1. Uh, Adam was created on day six. So a very literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2, we'd have to figure out some way to harmonize how Adam came first in chapter two, but the vegetation came first in chapter one. So it's just a cautious, uh, caution for us to, to consider the context of what we're reading. Uh, verse six, and uh, many translations will say mist, but um, that's an older understanding, uh, um, cognate, studies have, uh, have revealed that this word often describes in, in other languages an inundation of a river. So in the Mesopotamian area, the Tigris and Euphrates, when rivers inundate, this is this word. So uh, newer translations some, sometimes talk about streams or rivers. 
Um, so something like that, water of some kind, streams or rivers would come up from the ground, from the land, I'm sorry, from the earth, and water all the face of the Adama, the ground, again, Adama, it repeats. And uh, uh, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, again, uh, formed, fashioned Adam, dust from the ground. So, uh, li- listen to the, the phrase here. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, what God does is form Yatsar, Ha'adam, the man, Adam, from Ha'adama. So, uh, that, when I said God is really, really imminent in chapter 2, it's because of words like this, Yatsar, uh, to shape or form or fashion. Is that most of your translation, something like that, God formed? This is different from uh, God creating, when God created bara. Uh, there's a verb, by the way. Bara is a b- verb create that occurs with only one, su- one subject, God. Um, God makes asa. God does things. So this is a slightly different nuance. This word often gets used uh, describing something like a potter with clay. When you shape things with your hands, so we have to picture God getting some dirty hands here to sh- and going to the ground, to the dust, uh, to get the Adama, get into the Adama, the ground, the dirt, to make Adam. Again, very imminent story, almost human. And so that term, uh, when we talk about make, describing God in human terms, is called anthropomorphism. And, and, he, and here, w- throughout the story, God is very, very human-like in chapter two and three. Again, it's, it's Yahweh, the intimate covenant name that does this. And then look, ha- look at how much more intimate it gets. And then he breathes into his nostrils a breath of life. Think about how close and intimate that portrait is. And this is how then Adam became a living soul, a living being. And Yahweh Elohim planted a garden in the east of, uh, in the east, uh, and he put there the, the Adam, the man, which he had fashioned or formed. Again, the word plant, think about that. How do you plant a garden? You gotta get your hands dirty. Yatsar, like potter with clay, nata, to, to plant. So again, God is uh, portrayed here as very human, planting things, making things. Verse nine, uh, and Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God caused uh, to sprout from the Adama the ground, all the trees that are pleasant to look at and uh, good. I still have that word up there, good, yeah, tov, good right there. That's gonna become really important in chapter three, again. Tov, good, uh, as food, looks good as food. And the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
lots and lots of debate about what that all means. Uh, does the tree of knowledge, is the, does the tree actually produce knowledge of good and evil? Does it uh, make you aware of them? Does it give you any knowledge? Of course, the storyteller doesn't tell us the details. Um, verses 10 through 14, we're going to skip analyzing. <laughs> we, we can read it just to read it, but I won't comment on it. Essentially, I may not even read it here. Uh, essentially, it's a description of the river from Eden splitting into four rivers and covering this region. Uh, it's impossible to locate this because none of, the, none of these rivers have a, a single source. Uh, well, actually, Euphrates and Tigris do share a common uh, source, but and these names like Chavila, we don't know where these places are. Pishon, we don't know these names. But the point of this part that talks about the gold in this land called Chavila, and the gold is good, and the rivers just covered all these regions, including Kush, which is Ethiopia. So they're envisioning this Eden as covering all of life in, in their known world. So if, if you're an Israelite, you knew that if you go that way, it's Africa, Kush, or Ethiopia. You go that way, it's Assyria. So they mentioned that. So they're covering north, east, south, west, and, and they're saying Eden was a source of all life, was essentially that point. All right, so we're going we're to skip that part. We're going to make headway. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or even, even as simple as just good and bad. Um, there is discussion here whether the word here good, remember when we talked about the word tov, good? It can mean good in all kinds of ways. So what kind of good and, uh, so the word raw evil um, can just mean bad things. God does rot, by the way, in, in the Bible. God is attributed that adjective and verb to to do evil. Of course, we would not accuse God of moral evil. So sometimes this word just means bad things. So when, um, when God, oh, oh, remember when we did Jonah, some of you are in my Jonah sessions, uh, God sees the ra'ah, the evil of the Ninevites, and God wants to do ra'ah to them. And that when they repent of their ra'ah, God says, okay, I too also relent. Repent of the ra'ah that I was about to do to you. So the word ra'ah can, can mean bad and evil in the sense of moral evil, but it could just mean bad. And so remember, we, we said God saw everything God creates, and oh, to- tov, ki tov, it's good, it's good. Chapter one keeps repeating God saw everything that, that, that uh, uh, was good. So that tov becomes a really important key word throughout the story. What is good and what is bad? And... Um, the, the, the f- as, as you know, the story unfolds that Adam and Eve's understanding of good and bad doesn't seem to really work out to, uh, to explain kind of our understanding of good and evil. Because uh, the first thing they realize is that they're naked. 
And we all know that nakedness in itself is not evil, but yet, yet, yet they're ashamed. So good and bad or good and evil seems really confusing at first, and then we get to chapter four, which we won't in our class, uh, and then you get to see unfolding of evil in the hands of man when Cain kills Abel. Um, but the good and evil, of course, this is at the heart of, like you said, of all great philosophers and theologians and biblical scholars and great thinkers of all kind wrestle with this problem. Um, just, I have, a, I have a friend who's an ethicist, and his whole life is simply defining what is good <laughs> and what is not. And that is the work of his life, and he is constantly in struggle to define it. It is such a difficult thing to do. Um, if we had, if, I, if there's a tree that said, you will understand good and evil as soon as you eat of it, I might eat of it too, because I'm so confused sometimes, right? So which is good and which is evil? Um, anyway, thank you for your comment. Uh, so we're going to skip that part, and we're going to jump right into, <coughs> excuse me, uh, 15. So verse 15, uh, Lord God took the man, the, the Adam that God had created, right? And he placed him or settled him in the garden, uh, I'm sorry, in the garden of Eden uh, to work and to guard it. Those two verbs, to work, avad and guard, shamar, have connotations of servitude. Remember when uh, earlier in chapter one, Adam was created to rule creation, to govern creation? Uh, this time, not so much. Uh, in fact, the word avad, if you make it the verb, if you make it into a noun form, eved, means servant, slave. Now, it doesn't mean here that, th that he's becoming a servant or a slave, but it means to work, labor. Uh, and then the second word, shamar, means to guard or keep. If you make that into a, ver a noun, it means like uh, uh, a guard, literally a, like a guard of, a, of a, a soldier, someone who guards things. So we don't tend to think of servants or guards as high officials, they're not. And so these words all, all of a sudden bring man into kind of a different place in the garden. Somewhat striking considering the context of how, how this man was created to begin with. We don't know. And what was he working? Because aren't there all these trees that he's supposed to eat from? <laughs> so we don't know. I think the author is basically telling us that that was his job. We don't really know what that involved. But I think the, the connotation is clear. Don't think you're all that. <laughs> Other questions or comments? But now there's just the garden. He's in charge of the garden, but he's not even in charge there. He's a servant. He's serving it, and he's guarding it or keeping it from what or to do what, we don't know. But my students noted this when they were translating this, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago now. Uh, they said, oh, so work is not a curse. It's not after the fall. I'm like, no, who told you that? Uh, good work is deeply satisfying. Now, the curse will turn that work into very difficult work, right? So 
We don't have that kind of work. But there are moments, like even right now, I'm kind of working. This is my job. I, I do biblical studies. This is deeply satisfying for me. When I'm, when I'm teaching, when I'm, when I'm in my classrooms or engaging students at a personal level and discipling them, I don't think of that as a burden or toiling and the sweat of my brow. I don't, no, that's not the curse part. That's the pre-curse part of my job that I love and it gives me such fulfillment that I cannot imagine in heaven that we wouldn't have any work to do. I think we, most of us think that we're gonna be sitting around like with a harp <laughs> and then be, I'd be bored out of my mind, <laughs> right? After you played Bach about 20 million times, what do you do after that? So um, I, I think there'll be work but the kind of work that gives us meaning and, and, and joy and fulfillment. Uh, because that's what my students notice, like, oh. Because these are uh, first semester vocab words that they learn, guard and work. And they think, oh wow, we know these words. And those are not like always positive words. Um, sometimes it's hard to keep and guard. Uh, that word guard, shamar, gets used also when, when um, Moses says guard or keep the commandments. So, again, all those words throw, throws us back to Genesis. Keep and guard. Serve. Do not avad other gods. Do not worship. Serve other gods. But, shamar, keep the commandments. Those words throw us right back to Genesis 2. It's almost like if somebody, say, somebody said to us, um, you know, don't pursue life liberty and pursuit of happiness, but pursue something else. And we immediately go to our shared history, our shared stories, right? So those couple of words will, will take us back. And so even words like serve and guard occurring together like that takes us right back to Genesis 2 because it's such an important part of the theology and the shared schema, the shared understanding of their, uh, their whole national identity. So if you're a Jew of, of, uh, of the Old Testament time, they all knew the same stories uh, and and... You just need a couple of words to throw it back, including serve and guard or keep. Don't serve other gods, but keep the commandments of the Lord. Uh, okay. Which verse were we at? Are we in 16 now? Okay, so Yahweh Elohim, or Lord God, commands, commanded over the man, saying, from any tree or every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Achol tochel. My students love this, because they finally see, when they start translating Genesis 1, what I've been saying in in, uh, uh, second semester of Hebrew. English has ways to emphasize things um, that Hebrew doesn't, obviously. Um, English loves, for example, adverbs and adjectives to emphasize things. Hebrew doesn't. Hebrew likes to repeat things. And the strongest emphasis they could come up with is called an infinitive absolute followed by the finite verb of the same word. So this word, achal, to eat, it occurs first in the infinite absolute and then second in this other finite form. And you're like, okay, that's too technical. But basically, it's like saying, you may eatingly eat. You may eat, then eat some more. Or you may eatedly eat. (laughs) 
It's the same word occurring twice, and it is the strongest way that Hebrews know, Hebrew uh, language knows to emphasize something. So the idea here isn't that they are free to eat something. They are to feast. Just go nuts. Eat whatever you want from any tree of the garden. Of course, we're going to see a little temporary clause here that says, except one. Um, so keep that in mind, okay? This is repetition of the same verb in two different forms to emphasize something. And uh, this, this sentence also has what's called word order emphasis. It begins with, from all trees, from every tree, you may freely eat. Yes? Yeah, I'm not sure if eating to survive was the idea here, um, because death hasn't been introduced yet, right? In the next clause, death, the word death. They don't have to eat. They can just enjoy the food that's there. Um, they don't have to eat, I, don't, I guess. I guess I think of it this way. In, in, it, as, as you envision this garden, um, the original audience would not have thought about death as part of the created beauty uh, of God. And anything that was completely tov, completely good, all good, would not have had death in it. So that's why then the next, very, ne- the next clause we're gonna read, death is introduced. Uh, so the idea here is you can eat whatever you want. Now we, we associate, of course, food and life uh, but we just celebrated Thanksgiving. I don't think that was for living. <laughs> that was not for survival. That we just have to all the bird, right? That feast was not uh, sustenance. Sure, it sustained our body for the day, but it was so much more than that. It was about family. It was about friends. It was about giving thanks. And and so, in in, in most cultures, food is more than just a means to an end to survive. Um, that's why we share food, and breaking of bread is such an intimate act. In some cultures, it's stronger than others. The, the rules of hospitality in most Middle Eastern cu- cultures would surprise us. Um, but it's almost like God is telling them mm-hmm. they have to eat. Is that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Um, Okay, that, that, that's a great point. The word tava here, command, is the first time this word gets used. God didn't have to command anybody else. God speaks. Amar, let light be. Done. God makes things. God, God speaks all the time. Every, every day in Genesis 1 began with Vayomer Elohim. God said, God said, God said. Amar is to say. This is the first time the word command gets used. And we got to finish the sentence to know what that command really is because we're about halfway through that first clause. Uh, I know there's a, there's a, a, a verse, verse division, but the next word uh, in, chapter, in verse 17 begins with a conjunction or disjunction, which actually continues the same thought. So it began with from trees, every tree you may eat. And then verse um, 17 begins, begins also from tree. So the command uh, is, is continuing here, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat. In fact, the construction there, low plus an imperfect, 
is the same construction as the Ten Commandment construction. You could translate this, thou shall not eat from it. In other words, it's a, it's a universal prohibition. It's not a temporary one. It's in no, at no time is it okay to eat this. Just like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not case laws. They're universal laws. At no time is it okay to commit adultery. At no time is it okay to steal. Now there are case laws that follow the Ten Commandments. When this happens, you do that. When that happens, you could do this or you could do that. Uh, and those are constructed differently. Just back a second to why that command might be mm-hmm. here. Any of our other senses, we don't, I mean, you just, your eyes are there, you see, you smell, you breathe, you smell, mm-hmm. you feel the cold air, but eating, tasting is something we have to do. So that might be why God commanded, he wanted us to enjoy holy mm-hmm. what he's given us. Mm. All right, so I have uh, in my Hebrew class, my third semester Hebrew class right now, uh, we had just worked through uh, parts of Genesis. I have in that class uh, a veteran. He served in Iraq, and uh, he, he was an E5. Um, he was a, s- a sergeant in the army. And as soon as he came to this word, and he's, he's an older student. He's in his 30s. The rest of my class are in their l- late teens, early 20s. And as soon as we came to that word, he said something to us that I hadn't even thought about. He said, a command is different from a a word. A command sounds stronger, but it implies that there's another person that requires obedience. That means a command can be disobeyed. In fact, he talked about how sometimes uh, you, have to, you have to question and push back on a command, especially if, especially if it goes against your moral beliefs. In fact, that, that conscientious objection or any kind of objection to, uh, uh, you, you know, we think of military as somebody commands you, you do it. Well, most times you do. But if somebody commands you to do something that's horrible and you think no, you say no, I, I'm not doing that. Of course, you, you might get court-martialed and go through a process. But once he was, uh, he was uh, in Iraq and his commanding officer said, okay, we're gonna go take that whatever place he, there was like 60 soldiers on the other side, there was five of them on his side and, and the, all the soldiers looked at the uh, commanding officer and said, Captain, no, we can't, that's suicide. We can't do this. And uh, all of them said that and the captain finally said, you know, I think you're right. <laughs> so he backed off. And that, Brilliant observation from my, my, one of my students uh, had me rethinking this word for the first time. I always thought of the command as a stronger word than amar, to speak. When God speaks, it just happens. It's the first time God commands to a person who has free will to say no. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I learned it from a student. This is just, just I, I love that. So, yeah, the f- the only being so far created who can say to God, no, I don't want to do that. God commands to do something or not do something. So there's a positive and a negative. Um, eat, don't eat. Or you shall freely eat, but not this one. And, and that's, in essence, uh, the law. Ten Commandments, for example. There are negative pro- prohibitions, right? Don't do this. But there are also positive affirmations. Uh, Honor your father and mother. It could have easily been said, you shall not, thou shall not dishonor 
your father and mother. It could have been stated in the negative, but it's not. Keep the Sabbath holy. Again, it could have been stated in the negative, like all the other commands, but stated in the positive. So uh, laws, especially these, what, what scholars call apodictic laws, these universal big laws can, think of like our constitution. The big laws can be, Congress shall make no law, right? That's, neg- that's negative. Um, or you can have a positive statement. And so in, in this specific one sentence here, there's a positive and a negative. Eat, whatever you want. Not that one. Do not eat from this, yes. Okay, God made us, he knows what we need to do to survive. So in commanding that. Sure, right. Right, right. Right, but I guess, I guess what my, my hesitation to the, th- that kind of uh, thinking is we're leaving the story into kind of reality. Uh, and in this story, there is no death introduced yet. We're just about to get to death. And uh, what, did the, you know, um, what did the writer think when, when God commands you may freely eat of anything? We don't know. But it is a, a, a benevolent generosity that's portrayed. You may eat and eat some more feast, but not that one. And what this also says is this, the prohibition, it, it isn't as if, okay, you can only eat from this one tree and don't eat anything else. It's the opposite. The freedom to eat from all these other trees, but the prohibition is just one. So it speaks of what God's desires are for us. Um, When my students ask me, what should I major in? What do you want to major in? I can major in anything I want? Absolutely. Can I cheat on it? No. (laughs) Can I cheat on my test? No. See, the, the, the wide spectrum of what God allows us to enjoy and the things that God says, no, don't do this, the, 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 the comparison is supposed to be, then why would you ever need to do that one? If you have all these trees to eat from, why would you need to look at that one ever? But of course, in human condition, the one, you know, every parent knows, you tell a kid not to do something, that's the thing, that's the first thing that kid wants to do, right? Yes. A chal is to eat, yes, consume. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we're kind of leaving the story into the reality. Uh, of course, if you're reading the story, you peop- everybody, every human person knows what the experience of eating is like. I do, I do, but I think, I think in the, the, the original audience would have understood them actually eating food. Mm-hmm. Fruit. Because the story unfolds, and the serpent speaks to this woman. She looks at the fruit and eats of it. So, again, no one has to teach them how to eat, right? Um, okay, so, <laughs> my hopes of getting through chapter three without, uh, <laughs> is, is diminishing. Okay. Uh, so, the day that you eat of this thing, this tree, this from it, moot 
tumult. Same occurrence of eatingly eat, you will dyingly die. So it's a scary thing here. You can eat and eat some more, but when you do this, you will die and then die some more. The story, the reader knows. Again, we're trying to get into the world of the story too much and bring it into reality, but the reader knows, right? The stories are told to readers, not to the characters in them. Okay. Um, and then God says something that is startling to, it should be startling. Uh, my students saw it. Verse 18, and God says, it is not good that Adam is alone. Let us make for him an Azer uh, help. And then it says, like in front of him, literally, but lots of different translations uh, for that. Something like corresponding, uh, fitting. But it literally says, like in front of him. But what's startling is the lo tov. Lo tov, not good. Why is that startling? Why did my students see this and theologically freak out? God created everything. This is before the fall narrative, and there is a not good situation. How can God create something that is not good? So the situation is not good. In fact, the, the, in Hebrew, there's a hyphen between the not and the good. Uh, it's, it's like not hyphen good. This thing is not good. Lotov. Uh, could I get some volunteers to look up some verses for us? I need, I need four volunteers. Okay. Uh, could you look up Deuteronomy 33.7? Deuteronomy 33.7. And we had, uh, sir, would you look up uh, Genesis 49.25? 49.25. Another, I need two more, yes. Uh, Psalm 30.10. Psalm 30.10. One more. Yes. Uh, Psalm 54.4. Psalm 54.4. This is almost like sword drill things we used to do in Sunday school. Do you ever play sword drill in Sunday school? <laughs> Do you know what that is? Sword drill is uh, when you get little kids with their Bibles and you have them look up references and the first person looks, you know, finds it, has to put the finger in and raise it and then like, and then they win candy or whatever for little kids uh, to help them to look, look through their Bibles. All right, so um, I think first reading, Deuteronomy, please. And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With thy hands contend for him, and be a help against his adversaries. So those are the words, uh, uh, blessings, Jacob pronounces upon Judah. And so he's praying to God, be a help. Um, I think the next one I asked was... Um, did I ask you to read? 49.25? Yes. The verse is right 
in the middle. Oh, I'm of sorry. I just made a mistake. That Deuteronomy is from Moses. What he's about to read is from, uh, from Jacob to Judah. Yes, go ahead. Genesis 49, 25. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right in the middle of all the sentence. By the God of your father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breasts of the womb. Uh, Psalm 30, 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and then Psalm 54, 4. Psalm 54, 4. But surely God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Okay, thank you. In all these verses, and lots and lots and lots more in the Old Testament, this word help occurs. Each time this word help occurs, um, it is from a position of having the resources and the ability to help somebody out. Most often, this word help, uh, azar as a verb, ezer as a noun, occurs most often to refer to, as you heard, God. God is my help in times of distress. Oh Lord, I am in, I am in agony, please come help. Uh, the word often gets used in militaristic senses outside the context of God. So when you show up to help somebody, it's because you're losing a battle and somebody shows up and helps out. So the word that occurs right here in Genesis that God describes, it is not good, not good, Lotov. that this Adam is alone, let us make an Ezer, helper, does not mean assistant. The word never means that in any cognate language known, nor in the Bible, the Hebrew language. In fact, you could argue the word most often means deliverer, savior, rescuer. Now, why do I bring this up and pause and take up more time? There are scholars and, and Christians who believe that women are created to serve men. And if they, they often go to this verse, and I tell them, look, you can go to other verses in Paul's writing. If you want to make that argument, you can go, there are other passages you can look at. Of course, I would say those aren't really defending that position either. But when they go to this verse, what they don't realize is it's the, all, the wrongest verse you can go to to support that because what situation is Adam in? Not good. When you're in a not good situation, who do you need? A savior, a deliverer, a rescuer. Whoa. That's not the place to go to say that men should submit to, I mean, women should submit to men. That's just not, that's the wrongest verse. You can go to other verses, but not this one. In fact, uh, when we get to chapter three, we'll see uh, the serpent doesn't bother with a man because who's in charge? The woman. So he talks, the serpent talks to her she gives him the fruit to eat. He goes, okay, and eats. Uh, I know we're getting ahead, but I, I want to mention this because I don't know how much farther we'll get next week. So <laughs> when uh, 
Adam is approached by God and says, what, what, what did you do? What, you know, what happened? Did you eat from this thing? He says, the woman that you gave to be with me gave me and I ate. And the response of God is not to Adam to say, you shouldn't have done that. No, immediate response is God turns to the woman and says three words in Hebrew. Some of you might remember this from uh, uh, Jonah. Ma, zot, asita. What is this you have done? What this have you done? Those three words in the Bible are always rhetorical. The, The question is never asking for information. It's always rhetorical. So when Pharaoh says to Abraham, when Abraham uh, sells out his sister and Pharaoh's house gets stricken and he discovers that it was Abraham's sister, Pharaoh says to Abraham, Ma zorasit, asita, ma zorasita, what have you done? What is this you've done? And Jonah, the sailor said to Jonah, what have you done? It's always rhetorical. And it's usually about moral agency. You have the agency to choose right and wrong, good and evil, and you chose the evil, so I'm gonna say to you, how could you possibly have done that? Ma zot asita. Those words occur to the woman. She had the moral agency, apparently. Adam is excused. Of course, the curse happens for all of them, but he doesn't get the blame. She does, because she was supposed to be the Azer, the help in times of need. He was in need, he created her to help, and what happens? She completely blows it. So this verse is not the place to go to if you want to defend a more patriarchal view of, of male leadership or headship. Um, you, can, you can go to Pauline languages if you like, or Timothy or Peter, but this ain't it. Okay, so uh, like I said, if we, if we get there, it'd be great. Uh, we might have to skip some parts here. Um, so uh, now that God has said, uh, said this, God, uh, the Lord God uh, formed all the, uh, um, the living things of the field from the ground, Adama and all the birds of the sky, and uh, uh, he brought them before Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever he, and then I'll skip around here, and so he gives them these names, and whatever he calls them, those things became their names. Now, what, did, what language did, did Adam speak? Of course, Hebrew, right? Oh, we're gonna see that in just a minute. So, uh, verse 20. And, uh, and Adam named all the, the beasts and birds and so forth, um, all the living things of the fields. But to him, to Adam, he did not find an azer help in fr- like in front of him or appropriate fitting him. In other words, none of these other animals can serve as an azer this help in times of need. None of these animals will do. 
So Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and God took from his side, and some, most translations will say ribs, but could be one of his ribs, uh, and he covered the flesh beneath it. Then God built, Bana here is built, God built, Lord God built that bone, uh, that, or that side, however we translate that, uh, which he had taken from the man to, as a woman, to a woman. So he built this, whatever God took from the side of this man, into a woman. And uh, brought her before Adam. And Adam said, this? And then it says, um, it could mean now, as in now looking forward, or now as in Finally. So both translations happen here. Some, some translations will say at last. Some translations will just say now. But if you're, if you're looking for now and looking forward, he's, he's saying, okay, finally now in the future I have this, or I've been looking at all these animals and none of them will do, and finally uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Uh, and she, and this, this woman or this person, it just literally says this uh, in the feminine form, will be called woman, for from man she was taken. And this is why I know uh, Adam spoke Hebrew, <laughs> because in the story, there's a wordplay here. She will be called Isha, woman, Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. Since man is Ish, and the feminine form of Ish is Isha, this wordplay wouldn't work if he spoke any other language than Hebrew. <laughs> now, of course, it's because the story is told to the readers, right? Uh, <laughs> I do joke with my students, if you get to heaven and you don't speak Hebrew, you'll be lost for a while, so learn Hebrew now. Because <laughs> God speaks Hebrew in the Bible, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's true, in the Old Testament, God speaks Hebrew. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus go, goes around speaking Aramaic, which is very much like Hebrew. <laughs> King James English. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, so uh, they're getting a head start taking Hebrew with me. And then narrator takes over, and, and therefore uh, a man, Ish, will leave his father and his mother, and Davak, cling, cleave to his woman, to his wife. Uh, and they shall become one flesh. There's a huge wordplay going on with that word flesh. It started in 21, when um, God takes something from Adam's side, and the flesh has to be kind of covered or closed. And then in 23, Adam says, this is my flesh of my flesh. Um, and then in 24, they will become one flesh. There's a wordplay going on there. Uh, 25, okay, we're gonna make it through chapter two. 25, now the two of them were naked. Uh, the man and the woman, as if the two of them wasn't sufficient. I wanna make sure you know the man and the woman were both naked, and they were not ashamed of themselves. It's a reflexive or passive hithpael uh, there meaning they felt no shame. They weren't ashamed of themselves, even though they were naked in front of each other, obviously, because they were together. 
um, the word, I'm gonna tell you in just a minute. The word for naked is arom. Arom or arum. In the next verse, in chapter three, chapter three, verse one, really continue the story right along. Like there's a chapter division, I know, but um, it's, it's just the next line in Hebrew. Now, the serpent was arum. It's a word play. The same sound in Hebrew. There are homonyms. There are words that sound exactly the same, sometimes spelled exactly the same, but they mean completely different things. English has lots of homonyms, two words that are exactly the same, but they're not at all the same. Uh, So crafty, wise, shrewd, however you translate that. In the positive, this word can be used in the positive sense to mean wise. In the negative sense, it can mean like calculating. so the serpent was the most calculating from all the living things or uh, animals of the field, uh, which God Elohim, Yahweh Elohim had made. And he said, the serpent said, to the woman, Isha. Did God really say uh, to not eat from any tree of the garden? question uh, now lots of all right l- l- let me read and then I'll, com- I'll comment on this and she said uh, the, the woman said to the to the serpent from the tree of the garden we may eat but from the tree of uh, the fruit of the tree of uh, that is in the middle of the, the garden God said do not eat from it and do not touch it, lest you die. Uh, I've heard lots of sermons on this. And um, the typical sermon is that uh, the first thing that um, the woman does is add to God's command. That we should never add to God's command, which is true. We shouldn't add to God's command. But do you remember when um, God commanded Adam to not eat? Was, was the woman there yet? No. Those verbs were singular, masculine, singular. God commanded one, one man, don't eat from it. So she wasn't there in the world of this story. She wasn't there. So she's passing along whatever she might have heard. Also, in, in storytelling in Hebrew, uh, characters add to what, what had been said before. So when Ruth comes back from her time with Boaz, and Naomi says, hey, what happened? She tells Naomi what Boaz had said. And she gives more information than what the narrator had, had given in the previous story, in the previous unit. So his characters can often reveal more things. So it's possible that God said, don't even touch it. Now, God, we, we know that God didn't say that to Adam in that first part, but maybe Adam said, you know what, we shouldn't, probably, we shouldn't even touch it. Let's be safe. Um, th- then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. This is the same emphatic instruction that we talked about before. You will really not die. We are out of time. <laughs> uh, we're getting to the really good part. This is, this is the really, really good part. It gets juicy from here. Uh, so 
would you please remind me next week to start in, uh, ver in verse five? But um, I, I know the last few verses we moved along pretty fast, but we'll slow down during the curse because I think that needs to be expounded on a little bit in more detail. Again, thank you so much for coming. I know it's cold out. And <laughs> right, thanks. Thanks.